All right, so the Contend Conference, we're super excited about that. Again, mark the date, January 27th to the 29th. We have three incredible speakers coming in, and you'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. Um, mark the date, bring a friend. It's going to be great. I am, uh, I am really pumped about that. Well, good morning, NBC Church. It's, uh, it's good to be with you today. Hard to believe it's been over three months since I've been uh, up here sharing with you, but it was a, a very sweet summer. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I haven't met you. My name is Bob Erbig. I'm one of the pastors here at NBC, and I haven't been here for the last three months because I'm just returning from my first ever sabbatical. Uh, what a blessing, I have to say. Just my family and I want to say a big thank you for your generosity in allowing us to take some time to reconnect, to rest, to reset so many rhythms in our lives. In fact, one of the things that I, I, I did a lot over the summer was uh, wash dishes, and unfortunately on my way back, I got caught uh, by a, a David and Goliath battle with one of my bowls that broke, and uh, I lost. So uh, don't be distracted by this over the course of the, uh, over the message. <clears throat> Let me give you a few highlights from the summer. Um, we spent a lot of time, you can see some pictures here, we spent a lot of time at the Pleasant Valley Pool because we had some limitations to travel. Uh, so it was a great opportunity to go just down the road, spend some time as a family. My oldest daughter even learned how to swim. You can see a picture of her on there in the pool. Uh, we did a lot of walks. I was able to spend a lot of intentional time with each of the kids. You see a few pictures of me up there uh, with them. That also included a lot of Costco runs. Um, some of you may be able to resonate with that. Our middle child, Josiah, had a blast coming out with us and has been making a lot of significant strides over the summer. Our youngest, Zoe, uh, she's now almost walking. She's scaling her playpen. I have to keep an eye on her all the time, uh, but she's, she's, a, she's a lot of fun. Uh, Amanda and I were able to take a getaway, uh, one overnight, um, just a wonderful time of connection and rest. Um, but I think she appreciated more so the fact that I learned how to cook, and uh, she's really thankful for that. Uh, we switched our diets. We got a lot of exercise. I was able to spend a lot of time with the Lord in personal prayer and worship, and I even got an overnight retreat at the end of the sabbatical to kind of tie it all together. Uh, audiobooks for my new best friend. I have an Audible account now, and on a lighter note, I did get my first pair of Crocs. I used to be a hater, but I love the practicality. I hear it's in with the, with, with the middle schoolers now, so that's how it is. It was a wonderful summer, um, but it wasn't without its challenges. Uh, we did struggle, if you, if you follow us on our Facebook group, to get the nursing uh, care that we needed for Josiah, so it limited some of our activities. Uh, we had a lot of trips to chop. The kids needed a lot of attention, uh, but through it all, I think the Lord taught me a couple important lessons, lessons that I've known, but he impressed on me deeper in this time, and that was, it's not about me. Right? It's not about me. He's given me specific callings in my life, and he wants me to lean into them for his glory. And then secondly, he has given me all I need in him. And that's been a difficult lesson for me to relearn because in a lot of ways, I want it to be about me. I want to accomplish things in my own strength. In fact, in the middle of the sabbatical, when I was experiencing a moment of frustration, Amanda you know, gave me a day to go outside and to pray and to be alone, and what I really wanted to do is I wanted to do a hike. And so I went down to Chimney Rock Park in Bridgewater. Some of you may have been there before. Um, you know, I heard there's hiking paths, and so I went and parked in the parking lot. I got out. I followed the paved path into the woods. Uh, the maps online really aren't that great, uh, so I decided to explore for myself. And once I got in the woods, I crossed over this bridge, and it led me into this beautiful open area where there was a stream and trees, super peaceful. But as I kept following the path along, and I went up the upward terrain, I got into this more dense area where I think park rangers had, had cut out this really narrow path. It looked a little bit like this. 
Um, there was dense bushes and trees on either side. And as, as I'm walking along and I'm praying out loud to the Lord, I'm letting him know about my frustrations and my fears. And as I'm doing this, the path is just getting more narrow. You keep going along, and eventually I got to a place where, you know, I couldn't remember the path that I just followed. I couldn't remember what it looked like. And I was standing here, and I didn't know what was coming next. I didn't know where it was leading. Again, it's a really narrow, specific path. And at this point, you couldn't get off of the path. You had to follow it either forward or you had to go backward. And it was in that moment that I felt the Lord speaking to me. And he said something to this effect. He said, uh, the path is like this path right now you're on, Bob. It's like the path that I'm, I'm taking you on in life. It's very specific. You won't be able to see what's coming next, but you have to remember where you came from because I've given you a very well-worn path. Trust me. Trust me. Whatever's around the corner, I will be with you. You were chosen for this moment. And, and I started to, to just weep because I, I knew it was true. We don't get to choose where we're born, when we're born, the circumstances we face, the challenges we confront. As Tolkien famously said, all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that's given to us. And so the last few years for, for many people has just been a difficult time in ministry as I've seen many stats of pastors that are looking to get out because of the pressures that have been put on them over the last few years. In fact, I know a lot of people that just this was their summer of sabbatical, uh, a lot of people that were taking, taking time to rest and recharge for what comes next. And so um, we just, again, say very much thank you for that gift and the ability to, to do that. It, w- it was just wonderful. But as I was walking along this path, I had another thought. I thought, you know, what if I'm walking along, and what if there, all of a sudden there's a giant bear around the corner, and I couldn't see it? And what if I come face-to-face with this giant obstacle? I, I, I was asking myself, what would I do, literally? In my heart, in this moment, I became afraid, and all I wanted to do was just run, go back, and get in my car. And, and, and I wonder if that's something you can relate to today, because you're probably not walking the same path that I'm walking, but you are walking a path. And your path has its challenges. And one day you may come face to face with a giant grizzly right there and you want to run away. And the question is, what are you going to do? Maybe it's a frightening health diagnosis. Maybe it's the complexities of parenting in a world that's really hostile to our faith right now. Maybe it's the tension or or unfaithfulness in your marriage. Maybe it's a good friend's betrayal, the loss of a career. Whatever it is, you're going on this path and then you turn the corner and all of a sudden there's this giant danger you weren't prepared for. What will you do? Will you run or will you have faith that God is walking the path with you? Will you pray the prayer that David prays in Psalm 23 very famously? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So today we're continuing our study on the life of David, and we've come to that very famous story in 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Now you might be saying, oh, this must be an easy sermon to prepare for because who doesn't love David and Goliath, right? And that's true, although I would say, who hasn't heard of David and Goliath? Who doesn't know the story? In fact, even if you're not a Christian, you, you have some sense of the story, right? And if you grew up in the 80s and 90s in the church, you, you have flannel graph pictures flashing through your mind of what the, what the story looked like. Everyone has heard the story. What more can be said? Well, here's what I want to challenge myself with today. I want to challenge all of us with today. I don't care if you've heard the story before. 
I really don't care. What I want to know today is do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that when you face a challenge, when you face your Goliath, do you believe that God will be with you? Because the story shows us how to face adversity, how to overcome suffering, but not in the way you think it does. Because if you're facing a challenge today, and I suspect most of us are, it's time to take a second, a third, a fourth, a hundredth look again at David and Goliath and ask, what is really going on? When we think about David and Goliath, we picture that final battle. But take a step back and look at the backstory. What is really going on? What's the story really saying? And we see this message in three very clear movements. Number one, we're going to see that we're going to meet the champion, right? Then there's going to arise a challenger. And then finally, we're going to witness a battle for the ages. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we begin our time today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness your grace, Lord, your power in our lives, Lord. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of David and the things that we can learn uh, from it and be encouraged by it. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would soften our hearts to hear what you would have us hear. And that as we leave today, may we have a, a greater, bolder faith in you because we know that the battle belongs to you, not us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week, Pastor Dave did a great job of overlying uh, the life of David, and he finished off in 1 Samuel 16 with the anointing of David, where the Lord very famously tells Samuel that he's not concerned with outward appearance, he's most concerned with the heart. And so 1 Samuel 17 is a case study in living out that principle immediately coming after. The two chapters, they go together. Now, the story of David and Goliath is also important because it's really long, But it gets a lot of airspace in Scripture because there's a lot of lessons for us to learn in this story. And so in the opening section, the scene is set and we meet the champion of the enemy. It begins like this in 1 Samuel 17.1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them. So right away, we see the armies of the Philistines and the armies of Israel standing on two mountains ready for war. Now in 1 Samuel, there's already been battles between the Philistines and the Israelites at this point. In fact, in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, Saul chased the Philistines out of Israel's territory and into the foothills between Philistia and Israel. That's where this battle takes place. In fact, you can see some pictures here of the Valley of Elah just to get a sense of what it looked like. There's these two mountain ridges and there's this long valley in between. And if the Philistines win, they're going to push their way back into the land of Israel, and it's, it's not going to be good. And so, just put it frankly, there's a lot at stake in this battle. And that's something we can't miss in this story. The stakes were high. I wonder what the high-stakes battles in your life are right now. There's things in our lives that cause us tension, anxiety, fear. When you understand the stakes of this battle, you will really get the power of God that came through David. Now, another important cultural fact is this. Battles like this were seen as battles between opposing gods. The battle was not between the Philistines and Israel. It was between the Philistines' god, Dagon, and Yahweh, the god of Israel, the true god of the Bible. And location is also important because the Philistines thought that Yahweh was the god of the hills. And so you remember that picture? 
they were attempting to draw the Israelites into this valley where Yahweh, they thought, would be weaker. So no matter what you're walking through today, I think the principle is this. God is God on the mountaintop and in the valley. In the ups and downs of life, when you feel lost on the path, God is still in control. Never forget that. The Philistines are drawing Israel into the valley to intimidate them. And how will they respond? Now the Philistine champion appears. Look at verse 4. It says, There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And you say, what is a cubit? <laughs> well, Goliath appears, and just put simply, he is huge. Right? He's enormous. Most commentators say the measurement indicates that he's nine feet, six inches tall, which is nearly twice my height. So just picture two of me here on the stage. Or if I put it another way, he was almost two feet taller than Shaq. Right? That's how big he is. He's huge. Now, this was not an unheard of height in the ancient world, so we should assume its veracity. But Goliath is also armed to the hilt. To be sure, any smaller person who engages him in close, armed conflict is as good as dead. You see an image of him right here on the screen. He had armor that covered his arms and legs. It was an Egyptian-style bronze that weighed about 125 pounds. That's some heavy armor. Uh, the, The javelin he had, the tip of the spear itself, was made of iron and probably weighed 15 pounds. Goliath's shield was huge. In fact, it required somebody to carry it for him into battle. So needless to say, Goliath's appearance was intimidating. He takes us back to that feeling that I had in the park, that feeling of fear, and you you just kind of want to run away when you see a guy like that. But again, remember the lesson of 1 Samuel 16. We should not focus on outward appearances. And now Goliath speaks, and we get to hear what's in his heart. Look at verse 8. It says, He, Goliath, stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. So those are some fighting words. Goliath is engaged in an ancient form of trash talking, of psychological warfare. The champion on this side is enormous. He's got intimidating weapons, and he has the arrogance to taunt his opponents. Now, you might be asking, well, why don't the two armies just fight in battle? One-on-one warfare was common in the ancient Near East. It eliminated, they thought, necessary, unnecessary bloodshed. So each army would just simply choose their best warrior, and they would settle the battle. Now, what's ironic is that this was the reason that Israel asked for a king a couple chapters ago. And when they were given Saul, he was the one who was supposed to be going out and fighting Goliath. Now, remember, it was also noted that Saul was a lot taller than everybody else. And that's a clever device the author's using to show us here that when we focus on outward appearances, there's always somebody who's taller. But more than that, as I mentioned before, military conquests were meant to show whose God was stronger. If Israel was defeated, it would show that their God was not mighty. Will Israel have confidence in their God? Look at verse 11. It says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And that's a really, really important verse. 
Because up until this point, as I said, Israel has already defeated the Philistines a number of times. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, there's an interesting scene where God allows the Philistines to capture the Ark of the Covenant, and then they bring it back and place it in the temple of their god, Dagon, and the next day, the statue of their god is fallen over and smashed to pieces, showing that he's inferior to Yahweh. Appearances can be intimidating. And so it's worth asking ourselves today, what appearances intimidate us? For many of us right now, something is staring us right in the face. It could be a circumstance, a person, a diagnosis that's, that's causing us to break out in a cold sweat. And our fear is coming from forgetting how big our God is. And by 1 Samuel 17, Israel had forgotten the power of their God. They're afraid. Their chosen champion, Saul, he's afraid too. He should step up to fight, but he doesn't. When facing their giant, they forgot that our God is the mightiest in the world. And so, friends, this story is not about David and Goliath. Primarily, it's a story about whose God is stronger. And that's why I said at the beginning of the message, I don't care if you've heard the story before. It's I don't, you could say, well, I know it, it's a nice story. I could tell you about how big Goliath is. I could tell you about David's faith and his sling and the stones. But it doesn't matter. What matters is do you believe it? Do you believe that God is more powerful than all the other so-called gods in the world? Because Saul forgot, Israel forgot, and they stood paralyzed in the face of opposition. And I think this is more important today than in previous eras because There are are a lot of Goliaths in our world, taunting us, mocking our faith, opposing our faith. The world is not as it once was. In fact, there's a Christian author by the name of Aaron Wren who writes for the, uh, uh, the American Reformer, and he developed a really helpful framework, I think, for Christians to think through. He says that right now we are living in a negative world as it relates to the world's view of Christians. And what he means by that is we're living in a world that's actively hostile to our faith and beliefs. Here's the framework he talks about. He says, first, uh, and if you've lived long enough, you've probably lived through these different eras. He says there was a positive world, and he puts that pre-1994, the 50s being the heyday of this. Christianity was viewed positively in this era by society. Christian morality was still normative. To be seen as a religious person and one who exemplifies traditional Christian norms was a social positive. Christianity was a status enhancer. And then between 1994 to 2014, he calls that the neutral world, where Christianity was seen as socially neutral. It was a neutral attribute. It no longer had dominant status in society, but to be seen as a religious person, well, that wasn't a knock either. It was more like a, you know, a personal affection or a hobby. And Christian, really important, Christian moral norms retained residual force. But from 2014 onward, and this is what many people have been talking about, in this world, being a Christian now is seen as a social negative, especially if you're in a high-status position. Christianity, in many ways, is seen as undermining the social good, and Christian morality is being repudiated. So the Goliaths that you're facing right now are in many ways a result of living in this negative world in a lot of cases. How do you raise your children in a negative world? when Christian moral values can be viewed as immoral? How do you navigate a career when you're asked to endorse or promote ideas that are contrary to what you believe to be true? How do you view media that seems to 
constantly tell narratives that undermine a Christian worldview. Now, you might say, well, those are issues I just don't think about. Well, okay, but what do you do when it starts to infect important real-life issues like maybe school choice or the prospect of losing your income or being mocked as radical? Now, if you want to talk more about this application, I'm actually going to be hosting, I know we've I think they've announced this already. I'm going to be hosting a book club on uh, Natasha Crane's book, Faithfully Different, um, first ever. Uh, so check out that on the website. She does a great job of laying out the issues, and I would just encourage you to join us for a couple weeks in October as we, as we go through that. Um, I will note, um, I did have to make a date change due, some, due to some family obligations, so check out the updates on that on the website. Um, but I know that it can be scary, and I know it can be intimidating. Remember the message I got on the path? God has chosen us for this time. You and I did not live 100 years ago. We're not going to live 100 years in the future, most likely. We're living today. How will we respond to our Goliaths? Will we be afraid like Saul and the Israelite army, or will we respond differently? Will we trust God in faith and believe that he's bigger than our enemy? Now, thankfully, the story introduces another character. We now meet a challenger to Goliath. And we got to say, as we're reading this narrative, we say, finally, somebody comes onto the scene who's offended enough by what Goliath is saying to do something about it. Look at verse 12. It says, now David was the son of an Ephrathite in Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Now, we met David in 1 Samuel 16, but in chapter 17, he finally appears, And as I said, chapter 17 is here to show us how to live out our faith and not focus on outward appearance. That was the lesson at the end of chapter 16. And we learned in the first few verses that David is not in the army. He's he's back home tending sheep. He's, He's a good shepherd, right? At this point, he's likely a teenager. He's not yet 20 years old. He's a boy, a young boy, but he's bold and he's faith filled. And apparently he wasn't old enough to fight, so he's bringing supplies to the army, he's traveling a considerable distance to do so, and while he's doing that, we get a sense of what's going on on the battle lines in verse 16. It says this, for 40 days the the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Morning and evening, he's coming out taunting them the same way he did in that opening speech. Now in the Bible, the number 40 is the number of testing. Remember, Jesus was tempted for 40 days. Goliath is testing Israel, waiting for someone to fight him. And then one day, David finally shows up on the battlefield, and we read this, verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as a host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran out to the ranks. He wanted to see what was going on, and he's greeted by his brothers. And as he's sitting there talking with them, asking what's going on, it's then that the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, comes up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. But something's different right now. We read, David heard him. David heard heard him, which is a clever device, because the author wants to make sure that you know David caught the full breath of the words that Goliath was saying, saying the same stuff from that opening speech. David's running up to the battle lines to catch a glimpse of what the enemy's saying, and he hears it. And so the next few verses are really uh, 
we, we see two different responses to this challenge. First, we see the army of Israel, who's incredibly afraid, even to the point of running away from him, scared. Nobody will fight him. In fact, we read that Saul has offered, he's offered a reward to fight Goliath. He's offered the hand of his daughter in marriage. He's offered tax exemption to the person who will fight Goliath. Did you hear that? Whoever fights Goliath is going to live tax-free. And still there's no takers. But David responds, and his motivation is quite a bit different. Look at verse 26. It says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God. Now, some people think that David was enticed by the riches he could get, but I think the second part of that verse really gives us a window into his heart. He was offended for God. And you say, finally, finally, somebody is upset enough about what this guy has been saying Up until this point, everybody in Israel has been focusing on his outward appearance. They've missed the point. But David sees something nobody else sees. He sees what the battle is really about, the honor of God. And then he's mocked by his brother Eliab, we read. But David sees something the older and more experienced people don't, which makes me just ask a really important question about the story. Why is no one bothered? Why don't we read any account of somebody really being upset at what this guy is saying? All we hear is that people are afraid of how big he is. Because the battle is for God's honor, and it really seems like nobody's bothered by that except David. When was the last time you were bothered when somebody dishonored God? We're often not as offended as David. And you might ask, well, should we? I mean, should we be offended? But really, why? Why, why are we often not offended? Well, I, I think... I think for a few reasons. First, our culture has normalized indifference to God and his honor. It's just normal not to think about that stuff. And then second, as we get older, we tend to become more afraid. And you might say, Pastor Bob, that's kind of offensive. What do you mean I'm afraid? Well, what I'm saying is that we become afraid because we've counted the costs, right? Decisions you make now when you're older can affect your like other people, like your family. You have a lot more to lose. David is young, and his youth is teaching us something. And if you're a teenager here today, listen closely. David, this teenager, this young boy, sees clearly, and he challenges the older people in the army. This is a battle of the gods, he says. It's not about us. So don't be afraid to challenge people if they're not seeing clearly, especially as it relates to God's honor, because Israel was looking at outward appearances, but David saw spiritual reality. And so the story continues, because David is voicing boldness. He's now noticed by King Saul. He comes before the king. He offers to fight. But Saul, again, showing a lack of faith, responds by saying that, David, David, you're too young. David, you're not ready. David, you don't know what you're up against. But look at the beautiful words of David's response. I love this in verse 32. He says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I will go fight. I will do it. What a wonderful phrase that captures how we feel sometimes. Our hearts fail especially when we meet our Goliaths. We, can't, we don't feel like we can handle a situation that's placed on our path 
And we say, we need somebody to fight for us. We need a champion. We want a champion of our own. But there's another question here I, I ask myself. Why is David so confident? Why is he the only one who's confident? Why is he willing to go out and think he can win? And the reason is because he's already seen God work in his life. And so he starts to tell Saul all about how he's fought bears and lions with his bare hands, and he's won. Look at verse 34. He says to to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. Now, let me just pause here because, again, I know you've probably heard this story before. You may have read this. Um, Most people skip over this section, but I just want to take this in for a minute, okay? (laughs) Have you ever recognized how crazy this is? David fought bears and lions with his bare hands and he defeated them. Now, and I just said, why? Why was he doing this? Well, over the summer, I happened to, to watch a lot of National Geographic animal shows, and, uh, and I developed an appreciation for how intimidating bears and lions can be. All right. in, fact, in fact, going back to my illustration, if I was walking on the path at Chimney Rock Park and a bear like this was standing in my way, my first thought would not be, oh, let me jump on its back and try to fight it. What would possess David to do this? Well, you got the answer right there. He said it was for the sheep. He wanted to save the sheep. Now, I wouldn't fight a bear for the sake of just fighting a bear, but if they were attacking one of my kids, it wouldn't matter. I'd jump on its back. I would find a way. I would fight. And I got to tell you, I probably would prevail over that bear because he didn't know what he's doing. David fought to save the sheep. And then look at what he learned in verse 37. Don't miss what he says here. He says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And it's this verse right here that gives us a window into the gospel. Because just as David risked his life for the sheep, Jesus Christ gave his life for us. We see here that God is our deliverer. And that is what Israel missed. That's what David saw. The battle belongs to the Lord. He will fight to save the sheep. He will provide what we need. All we have to do is trust him. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Because there is a big difference in believing in God and trusting him. Because you can believe in God but be indifferent about him. When you trust God, you not just believe, him, believe in him, but you know it's going to be okay because he's going to act and he's going to sustain your life. And that's another important lesson I really, I really, the Lord impressed on me on my sabbatical was I trust in myself too much. I think I can handle more than I actually can. And so one night I was reading through the devotional streams in the desert and I came across this really convicting quote. Uh, let me just share it with you. Um, Things in our lives may seem to be going all wrong. And maybe you feel like that today. But God knows our circumstances better than we do. And he will work at the perfect moment if we completely trust him to work in his own way and in his own time. Often, there is nothing as godly as inactivity on our part. 
where nothing is restless, as harmful as restless working, for God has promised to work his sovereign will. So things in your life right now may be going all wrong. There's lions, there's giants, there's bears. Oh my. They may be on your path. And our first thought is often to fight with the weapons of the world. In fact, that's what Saul tries to get David to do. Saul, you remember this? Saul takes David and he gives him his armor, thinking it's going to do something against Goliath. And what does David say? David says, no, I I can't do this. This isn't going to help me. But we do the same thing. We often trust ourselves before God. So you, you might be in a situation where, you know, the finances are bad, so I need to work harder and make more money, right? The kids are not acting as they should, so we just need to teach them to be more moral. Now, you may need to do those things. I mean, there, there's responsibility involved there too, but the deeper principle I'm trying to get at is that we need to lean in and trust God more and first, David was confident in his battle, not because of his abilities, but because of God's ability. He remembered God's deliverance. And with that knowledge, the story gets good, because now he goes out to battle. It says, then he, David, took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, we'll learn more about the stones in just one minute, but before we get there, don't miss that it was David who approached the Philistine. He got into the battle. He trusted God. In fact, I would say that he was confident that no matter what happened, his God, our God, was and is stronger. So we've met the champion, we've met the challenger, and now it's time for a battle of the ages. And it really is a battle of the ages, because it points us forward to so many things. And I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite scenes in all the Bible. Maybe it's one of yours too, because these next few verses are just epic in nature. But again, it's not about David and Goliath. This is about the false gods of this world and the true God of the Bible. Goliath is standing there on the side of Dagon, and David is standing there on the side of Yahweh God. Just picture them behind David and Goliath as they come out for battle. And listen to the arrogance again of Goliath. He says this in verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. A youth, but a handsome youth. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistines said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. It gets kind of gruesome, right? Not just a little kid's story. So again, you have this huge warrior who's probably undefeated in battle. He's close enough to get a good look at David, looking right down at him. And he hurls foul insults at him. He says, give me a real challenge. Have you ever had somebody speak to you this way? Maybe right now you're encountering it. And if you are encountering some kind of resistance or somebody acting this way, listen to David's reply and find confidence in what he says. This young teenager, half the size of Goliath, shows no fear. Listen, I love these verses. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, the weapons of the world. 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Now, if you focus in on those last few verses, again, you see why this battle is happening. So that all the world may know that there's a God in Israel. So that all the world would know and see that he doesn't save by the world's weapons. The battle belongs to the Lord. Now, this story happens in David's youth when he's at the pinnacle of trusting God. But again, don't make the mistake that this is about David. This is about David's God. The story is told so that people would know that he has the power to save, that they know who he is. This battle is for his name and his honor. And again, that is what Israel missed. That's why they were afraid. And so David right here shows us the spiritual reality of facing giants. And with that, he rushes into battle. Verse 48, it says, When the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. And the stone sunk in his, the stone sunk in his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Now, at this point, the battle kind of seems a little anticlimactic because leading up to this, you would think it's going to go 13 rounds. But David's quick victory shows us what God can do. But there's something else I want you to notice. And he goes to great lengths earlier in, this, in the story to describe Goliath's armor. If you go back and you read, it's got a lot of verses describing how amazing Goliath's armor is. And I think the author does that to show you how worthless it is. Because you see, Goliath was actually at a disadvantage. David, as you know, had a sling and a stone. And I was always told, I don't know about you, when I was growing up, I was always told David had these little pebbles, right, that he put in the stone and he slung it and it hit the guy's forehead and you think, did that really kill him, right, really? But in actuality, these stones were the size of a tennis ball and they weighed about a pound. And more than that, many Israelites were excellent marksmen with a sling. And so if they slung these stones, they could go as fast as 100 to 150 miles an hour. Now, I don't care how big you are, if you're hit by a tennis ball-sized stone that weighs a pound right in between the eyes at 125 miles an hour, you would fall over dead too. Like, this was a deadly weapon, but only David sees this. And he trusts God. And so we're told, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And just to be sure, David goes over to Goliath. He draws his weapon. He cuts off his head. And I know to, modern ear, to the modern ear, that sounds gruesome and barbaric. But you have to understand, in David's time, his readers would have understood this meant that Yahweh was victorious and more powerful than the gods. Military victories pointed to that. And this is what David and Goliath is about. It's not about the ultimate underdog story. It's a story of deliverance, of faith, of God's glory. 
It's a story that tells there is a God in Israel, and the battles we face today occur to reveal God's power in our lives. It's a story that is told over and over and over again in Scripture, and it culminates in the cross of Jesus Christ, who wins the ultimate victory. David points forward to Jesus, because Jesus also lived a humble life as a carpenter and was used by his father to defeat the enemy. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus rises again victorious to show he has defeated our great enemy, Satan. And so Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. Do you know that word gospel, the Greek word, is a military term? That when a battle was won, somebody would run into town and shout it. And just like David cut off the giant's head on the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the enemy, we're told, the serpent. Jesus died on the cross to win the ultimate victory so that one day he would return and show the world that there is a God who rules over all the earth. But until that time, we will face giants. God has each of us on a path. We were chosen for this time. David and Goliath is a compelling story. But I don't care if you've heard it before. What I want to know is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that God is that powerful? Do you believe that God will fight for you, that he will deliver you from the giant that comes across your path? Because too often we live in fear because we can't see the spiritual reality behind the physical world. And so today, I want to encourage you to see what David saw, that God is bigger. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up for one final song. And as they do, I would just encourage you this week to pray the words that David said to the enemy, in, particularly in verse 47. Focus on those last couple verses because he's telling us that God gives deliverance so that the world will know that there's a God in our lives. And as I was preparing the message this week, I asked myself that question. I said, Bob, when you face adversity, when I experience suffering, when people mock me for my faith, what will my response be? Will my faith show there's a God in my life? And that's been very real for me at many points. The Lord has had to grow my faith. He's asked me, do you believe that I am bigger? And so I would just ask you, how about you? What will your life say this week? Don't focus on the armor, the weapons, the words of the enemy. Instead, believe in the name of the Lord your God and live your life so that all the world will know that he is God and he sent his son to win the victory. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us as we get ready for our last song. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much today for your goodness, for your grace, for your word, Lord, and for stories like David and Goliath that we can look back and say, only you could do that. Only you could deliver David from the hand of the Philistine. Only you could deliver David from the hand and the paw of the lion and the bear. And I suspect I have some friends in the room right now, Lord God, that are walking through a lot. There's a Goliath standing them right, staring them right in the face, Lord. And I pray that you would remind them today that you are bigger. There's always somebody who's taller. But nobody's taller than you. Nobody's bigger than you, Lord. 
And so we thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus, the hope that we have in Jesus, Lord God, and the reality that the story points us forward to. Help us to believe this week, Lord, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.